Welcome to Horror Comics Podcast. I am Chris, and today we are going to be talking about uh, something that I kind of found to be more of a, like, what not to do in horror comics or just storytelling in general. Um, and oddly enough, you know, I figured I'd be like, you know what, I'm trying to find all these things that I do like. Let's find something that I know just doesn't work, and let's talk about that. And we're talking about Ghost Stories number 21 from uh, Dell Publishing, Dell Comics, uh, or Dell slash Western Western Publishing. Uh, we'll get into the history of that. Thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you all for, you know, continuing to support uh, this show. Yeah, it means a lot. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at HorrorComicsPod. Or if you want to email, uh, I'll read show mail if you so wish uh, on the show. You can email me at HorrorComicsPodcast at gmail.com. And I'd love to correspond with you. And if you, like I said, if you want some show mail to be addressed on the show, I'm happy to read it. But uh, getting straight to the point here, uh, like I said, uh, we got Ghost Stories, number 21. Now, a little bit about Dell Publishing. They publish books, magazine, and comic, magazines and comic books uh, starting in 1921 by George Delacorte Jr. Uh, he started with just $10,000 and two employees and one magazine called I Confess. Uh, but they ended up you know, getting to doing dozens of pulp magazines, uh, detective stories, articles about you know, different movies or romance books, uh, or smoochies, as I like to call them. But uh, during the 20s, 30s, and 40s, Dell was one of the largest publishers of magazines, including pulp magazines. So they had a lot of humor magazines, uh, including uh, 1,000 Jokes. I mean, God, can you imagine the jokes? We won't even touch on that because I just don't even want to imagine. So that was launched in 1938. But from 1929 to 1974, they published comics under the Dell Comics line, the bulk of which, 1938 to 68, was done in partnership with Western Publishing. In 1943, Dell entered into paperback book publishing with Dell Paperbacks. They also used the book imprints of Dial Press, Delacorte Books, Delacorte Press, uh, Yearling Books, and Laurel Leaf Library. Li- li- what? Library. What am I fucking for? Library. Uh, we're going to skip ahead a little bit here in their history um, and go ahead and get to you know, Ghost Stories, uh, which was from 1962 to 1973. Uh, now, it is a horror anthology series, but it's not strictly a collection of just ghost stories, but it's one just supernatural uh, in general. Um, you've got Aztec idols coming to life, uh, British soldiers being saved from uh, Germans by a tank squad that had been blown to smithereens two days earlier. Uh, the s- stories are pulpy over- and overly dramatic, and the artwork isn't so hot, but this comic is a blast from the past. Every bit of dialogue sees with that certain something that... Uh, typifies, I'm reading from an article here now, uh, these late 60s, early 70s independents. Though a good number of Dell's titles from this time were based on television properties, cartoon characters, and comic strips. We went over that. Uh, There are a handful that had original stories. Uh, Ghost Stories is one, but others include Combat, Espionage, and many of the four-color comics. And uh, what we're going to deal with here, it's so strange because... 
I, I mean, maybe they reuse stuff, but I'm reading from, and I'm just trying to double check here. Like I said, issue 21, and the issue, the physical copy of issue 21 that I have is, okay, so they just used the same cover. Oh, that's so weird. Okay, so issue one and issue 21 have the exact same cover, except issue 21's art is like lighter. Uh, issue one had a lot darker sort of purples in the background, a much uh, so- more solid yellow for the title. It's so strange. I kept seeing that. I was so confused. And like now I'm looking at it, I'm like, no, they just reused it now i'm kind of wanting to go through the rest of the series because i do have more issues of this comic but this was the one that i picked up and was reading and it was like i like the first story i do like i think it's an interesting story uh kind of cool and then from there it's like it's not that it's all bad and we'll get to it so um but i wanted to kind of change like i said change this into a an episode about like problems with telling just really stories in general. So uh, we'll go ahead and head over to the book. And if I can find creative credit, if I can find credits for these, I'll be happy to um, give credit where it's due. But I am not able to find uh, writers or artists. And if I do, I'll inject them in here. But as of right now, I can't find it. But anyway, like I said, let's head over to our stories. And our first one is The Monster of Dread End. Now we see a sort of downtown area that seems to be like pseudo flooded. You've got chains uh, kind of barring the crosswalk with a keep out sign. Long empty of human life, the dark, decaying tenements of Dread End stare silently across at each other as though still frozen in horror at the memory of the frightful scenes they alone had once been witness to. Time was when Dread End, then known as Hawthorne Place, was a busy, noisy, happy street that echoed to the sound of children's laughter. Then, early one morning, the first one was found. We see the milkman getting back into his truck, or getting out, either one, and he says, well, what's that? It was a balled-up thing, like an empty wrapper thrown carelessly aside, but somehow still recognizable as having once been human. Now we have the townspeople and the police kind of all in a panic, police trying to keep everyone in order. We have a, a, a boy coming down the steps of his front door saying, hey, my you know, my kid's sister is missing. Her bed is empty. For days, the police asked questions, but no one had seen or heard anything. A few weeks passed. Then, early one morning, we see a mother trying to wake her son for school, but he's not there, so... Outside on the street, another balled-up thing was found. We see a woman sweeping the sidewalk, screaming for the police. Inch by inch, the best brains of the best police department in the world combed the area. We see two detectives who can't seem to find anything. We, one of the detectives, obviously, who's smoking a pipe, says, I don't know if this were only the work of an ordinary run-of-the-mill maniac. When, a week later, it happened again. The panic-stricken inhabitants of Hawthorne Place began to flee, some even leaving their furniture behind. We see the citizens 
willing to leave any anything basically to get out of there and survive. They're panicking. Uh, but some people are still trying to move things into moving trucks. The few who remained boarded up their windows and double locked their doors. We see a husband and a wife and their two what seems to be twin sons boarding up from the inside. But again, the terror struck. The mother is screaming that the twins are gone. It seems like the windows that, they, that were boarded up have now been torn down. Completely baffled, the authorities could only evacuate the remaining tenants and declare the street out of bounds to all. This is where we see the keep out sign come into play. As the years went by, fearful residents of neighboring blocks gradually moved away until finally, Dread End was surrounded on all sides by other silent, empty blocks. After dark, no one ever dared venture into even the outer fringes of this no-man's land, let alone the very center of it, until tonight, though only seven when his little sister became the first victim of the Dread End monster, Jimmy White resolved that if the police didn't find her killer, someday he would. As Jimmy grew older, he became more and more obsessed with the idea that the killer still lurks somewhere on that sinister block. So, that fateful night, he swore an oath that he would become a bat. Now nah, I'm just fucking with you. Now, at the age of 15, Jimmy feels he is old enough to ferret the monster out, crouched in the shadows of an alley next to the house he had once lived in. Jimmy begins his lonely and fearful vigil. Now he's thinking to himself, I wish I could be sure somebody will hear this police whistle. The hours drag by, but no sound disturbs the unearthly quiet of this dead, deserted street. When a faraway church bell tolls the hour of five, Jimmy stands up to stretch. Dawn in a little while. I'd better be going. Maybe next time. Jimmy stops mid-stretch, then quickly crouches back into the shadows. His whistle forgotten, Jimmy stares, unable to believe his eyes. Slowly, a giant claw-like hand, followed by a thick, sinuous, lizard-like arm, slithers out of the manhole. Slowly, like a blind boa constrictor searching for something, the hand gropes its way across the street and up the side of a wall, groping, groping, searching, searching. Suddenly, the boy's whistle slips from his trembling fingers and strikes the ground. Quick as a wink, the snake-like arm snaps back into the manhole. So Jimmy thinks, it's gone. Now's my chance to run. But it moves so fast, it could shoot out and grab me before I could... It's too late. It's coming. Out again. This time, toward me. Slowly, the hand gropes towards the petrified boy. It stops to explore a garbage can. Finding nothing, it crushes the can as though it were tissue. Crunch. Then, to Jimmy's relief, it turns and gropes its way out of sight. Jimmy watches the repulsive arm continue to flow out of the manhole. It seems endless. The more that comes out, the farther away the hand is getting. Then a sixth sense warns Jimmy. But too late. The monster has found him. Now this is the image that kind of struck me as I was reading this. And I'm enjoying it at this point. And the way they draw this arm 
this it's like a snake it's like a really unsettling snake it's very scaly but it's huge they describe it as like a boa constrictor but here when they when they you know but it's too late the monsters found him you're seeing this thing going in and out of windows of this building to slither around it's just hanging out of windows looping in and out to come up behind him and it's just creepy and i don't like snakes so maybe that's why it's effective for me but this was just like ugh, it gives me the heebie-jeebies but moving on like a rattler the claw strikes and closes on thin air For a while, Jimmy somehow manages to duck and dodge the lightning-like thrusts of the terrible claw, but the end is inevitable. Certain of its prey, the claw hovers. Suddenly, a shattering series of explosions tear the night apart. We get a barrage of boom, bam, 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 pow, 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 panels. Then, silence again. Jimmy opens his eyes and stares down at the great limp claw. Are you all right, boy? Sorry we had to let it go so far, but we wanted to, we wanted as much out of it as in the open as possible to make sure. Jimmy asked them, you were here all the time. We've been here for years, son, and it might have been longer if you hadn't shown up. We have one officer that seems to be either holding the gun into the palm of this snake hand or injecting or taking something. Anyway, he says, look, those large pore-like openings in the palm. It's fed by absorption after crushing its victim. So Jimmy says, did you know it was there too? The officer says, yes, we'd seen it a few times, but it never came out far enough. Its sense of danger was too acute and its speed so lightning-like, we didn't want to risk only wounding it and letting it get away. The end. And as we end, we do see that they have ripped, as I said before, this snake-like creature had woven itself in and out of windows of this building and they have just i guess their gunshots had just ripped this thing apart because you just have gross bleeding sections of this monster hanging out of these windows now now i liked this story because i just wasn't sure where it was going to go it's very short um and once they revealed what the monster was that was getting these children um I'm going to be honest, this snake hand thing was terrifying because it's like it starts with you're seeing the this claw come out. So you're expecting this big monster, but it's really not. It's it's like kind of more about what you're not seeing. Um, and it kind of tricks you when you do see what they're revealing because it's like, OK, here's the claw. And as it comes out, it's just like this long, continuous arm that's more snake-like. But you never get to the base of what the creature is. Like, what is the source of this? What's it connected to? They never find that out. They just manage to catch what part of the creature they can. So you're kind of left with this fear of like, but there's something bigger uh, underneath. And I thought it was really effective um, especially since it's going after children. That's kind of the thing that it wants to take. And it's not only just taking them away, but it's leaving their remains in these just crushed up, you know, it's very morbid. It's very gory sounding. You don't see them necessarily, but um, it's more of the idea, again, going back to what you don't see, but what is described, uh, I think is very effective here. Which is very strange because moving forward, (laughs) 
it is uh, very top-heavy, as they say. So, that being said, uh, it, okay, before I go into, you know, this whole idea of these are things you shouldn't do, um, I want to say this art is fantastic. Like I said, I still can't find d- details on this, even, like, now, like, kind of pausing here and there and trying to find it. But the art is fantastic. Um, it is in color. Um, and it's what you'd expect from a comic of this time that's in color, and it's just great. It's fantastic art. Um, and um, I, again, this story is very much an enjoyable story. Uh, it gets the sort of ick fa- factor, especially if you don't like snakes, like I said, across. Um, and I just want to give high remarks as much as I can to that before we move on. So now let's do just that and move on to. The Werewolf Wasp. Now, we've got young Bobby here. God bless him. Uh, he is just your buddy Holly, I guess, sort of looking guy. But um, he's got this crazy big wasp in a jar that he's caught. And he's talking to his mom. She's like, oh, your lady's fine. You know, what is it? He's like, well, it's a wasp, but it's very unusual. Um, I've never seen anything like it. And, you know, she makes the point that, you know, they're awfully ferocious looking. He's like, well, wasps are ferocious. They're the terror of the insect world. So he's talking about how he can't wait to get this to Professor Larvae. uh, Because Larvae will know what it is. Professor Larvae. And his mother gives us the detail that, well, he should because he's, you know, one of the world's foremost entomologists. And, um... Bobby thinks to himself, you know, it's weird. This uh, wasp seems to grow larger by the minute. So he tells his mother that he's going to the professor's house now. And, you know, don't worry, I'll be home before dark. And she says, well, yeah, that'd be great. Because, you know, there was a another, in bold, another boy disappeared last night. They make some comments here that I'm not sure if they're culturally sensitive or what it means. So I'm... I'm just, it's not like imperative to the story, so I'm just going to move past it. Um, the mother just basically says, be careful after all that. So uh, Bobby runs across a girl named Bertha, who is like, hey, were you headed up to that old, are, are you headed up to that old uh, Spider Man's house? I'm like, that sounds cool, but not the same Spider Man because we're on a different publisher. So he says, Professor Levy is not crazy, Bertha. So she's like, anybody that. <laughs> Anybody that wears a long overcoat, heavy gloves, and a net over his head all year round is even inside his own house must be crazy. How does she fucking know this? I've told you a thousand times, Bertha, the professor is very allergic to bee stings. Somebody ought to tell the great insect expert that bees don't come out in the winter. So Bobby defends him and says, he just doesn't want to take any chances at all, Bertha. Jesus, Bertha, get fucking mind your own business, Bertha. Jesus. None of your business, Bertha. It's too bad that people don't know the professor as well as I do. He's the kindest, gentlest, wisest person I've ever known. And Bobby, I'm starting to think maybe... Anyway, he goes up to the front door and starts ring, ring, ringing it. Uh, no answer. So he's like, well, uh, I wonder if I could leave the jar on the porch. No, it might get broken somehow. So maybe I'll try the back door. He goes to the back door. And if it's open, he's going to leave the jar inside. But it's locked, too. So he sees the sort of... Um, storm shelter or like entrance 
storm shelter entrance to the basement. Uh, I'm sh- I don't know if there's a different name for that. Where I'm from, we don't have those. So, uh, in fact, basements are very rare around here, although they do exist. So, Bobby, in his laziness, says, I hate to carry this little jar all the way home again. If only I could hide it around here somewhere. So he lifts one of the boards of this basement entrance. And he says, oh, perfect. I'll just set it down inside. Well, when he opens the board, you hear this, oh, I guess that's the sound. I don't know if that's the sound they're trying to make at all. Might have been a, I fuck, I don't know. So he's thinking to himself, why? That sounded like a groan. So maybe it was supposed to be, anyway. So it continues. And he says, hello? The groaning continues. So. I guess he's breaking these boards back enough to where he can just walk inside. And he's thinking to himself, well, maybe the professor's sick in there. So he gets to the door at the bottom of these steps, and he's like, well, it's unlocked. So he goes inside, and you see all these wrapped up bodies, and they're all moaning. And he's like, what are all those? The lights come on, you hear a slam, and Bobby's starts to pull away this sort of what seems like webbing from this face of one of these bodies. And he's like, it's a human being. It's a boy. So then you have Professor Larvae starting to remove the netting over his head and says, I'm sorry you blundered into the spider's larder, Bobby. Bobby says, the spider, spidey, the spider's grubbing derby, the spider's larder. Oh, I, I never saw your face before, Professor you have, Bobby, and those who did never told about it. Come, Bobby, I'll wrap you nicely. No, no, and he drops the jar and it crashes. So you have Professor Larvae say, the werewolf wasp. And this wasp is huge now. And Professor Larvae say, no, no, don't. And you hear Professor Larvae screaming. And now the werewolf wasp is, I guess, flying away from Larvae's body. Bobby is now running away screaming, no. And as he's escaping the basement door, the wasp just kind of takes off with like a zzz and like a musical note. And Bobby's running down the dirt road. He's saying, I gotta, gotta get help. Those boys may be all alive. And then the end. That's it. I'm not kidding. That's how it ends. Um, <clears throat> which is seemingly like right in the middle of the story. Uh, but that's it. That's how it ends. Um, again, what not to do. Um, I don't know. How do, how do I even describe what I, you know, <laughs> I think if, if you've read this issue, I feel like you know the, the feeling of, wait, what? Like, wh- why even like end with him speaking? Like just have him end with him running away would actually be more absolute than like, I got to go get help. Those boys could be alive. Maybe, but maybe not. I, I We don't know. Like, it's very, uh, very strange. And and then we literally go right into the door. So we have a young blonde girl in her bed. And uh, on the wall where her, um, whatever you call it, she's got the mirror and her dresser there. There is a dungeon-esque door with some hieroglyphics around the threshold and some snakes around these metal clamps and a skull with the uh, whatever you call the knocker thing on the door. It's not called a knocker, but whatever. Maybe it is called a knocker. Maybe that... Anyway, never mind. So she calls for her mother and daddy, 
which is very uneven and really makes me want to pop my fingers right out of their sockets because Jesus, just mother and father or mommy and daddy. Come on, girl. We're already just set up to not like this girl. So, the mo- <clears throat> sorry, the mother and daddy come in and daddy says, again, Junie? She says, look, daddy, look, it's there. Can't you see it? There's no door here, child. You only imagine you see a door here. So mother says, Daddy is right, dear, as she's comforting Junie. Junie says, It always goes when you, when you and Daddy come in, Mother. So Mother says, Please believe us, dear. You don't really see a door. It's only in your mind. And Daddy walks out, scratching his head. Junie says, But it's real. I tell you, it's real. Mother says, Once you stop thinking about it, I guarantee you won't see it anymore. I guarantee. Now go to sleep, dear, and remember, no thinking about that door. She says, I'll try, mother. I just won't look over there. So she buries her face in her pillow. But of course, she's like, no, it's worse this way. I feel it might be opening, and she hears a slam. So she looks over, and the door is back, and she says, it was opening. Mother, daddy, I wish you would have swapped it just to fucking piss me off and said, mommy, father. But she didn't, so I digress. Mother says, Junie, this is ridiculous. <clears throat> Sorry, mother doesn't say, Junie. Mother says, Junie, this is ridiculous. Junie says, it was opening, mother, it was opening. She's like, look, Junie, look, there positively is no door there. She's like, I know, mother, I know. I don't even have to look. I'm sure it's not there now. So daddy says, it was never there, Junie. Never, never, never. Although I wish he was like, it was never there, Junie. Never, never, never. But who knows how he says it. I don't know what the artist thought or the writer, what the voicing would be, because I don't fucking know who was it that wrote this. Who knows? So Mother says, really, Junie, Daddy and I, Daddy and I are beginning to lose my patience with you. (laughs) Which you would think she'd say, Daddy and I are beginning to lose our patience with you. But Mother apparently isn't quite... uh, all here, or she's just um, f- so fucked up because she's having to deal with her delusional daughter. She says, we have every reason to believe you're a healthy, normal girl, Junie. There's absolutely no excuse for this behavior. But Junie says, I'm sorry, Mother, I'm sorry. Mother says, once and for all, Junie, let's have no more of this. I promise, Mother, good night. So Junie takes a chair. She walks over to this satanic-looking door. And she shoves the back of the chair under the, you know, under the doorknob, as people would do in movies and whatnot. So then Junie goes and she takes a blanket and pillow off her bed. Um, she walks past her parents' bedroom, who are in bed, seemingly asleep. And she's decided to kind of go out on the porch, um, even though it's a little chilly. You know, she might feel a little safe. So she's got it like on the, her little sun bed there with a blanket and pillow. It actually seems really cozy right now. It's raining right now outside my window, and I'm just kind of like, I just kind of want to curl up in a little ball and get my fucking kitty cat and just get cozy, but I'm going to finish this book. So late the next morning, she wakes up. She's like, realizes, okay, where am I? Okay, she's on the porch, and as she's walking inside, she realizes it sounds very quiet. So she's like, well, it sounds a little too quiet, a little too rough. Props to those who get it. Then she lets out a sigh and says, I knew it, and I never heard a sound, as usual. We see her room is a complete disaster. 
the house has been completely destroyed inside. And as she's walking through the house, she says, I lose more parents this way. A chair under that knob never did work. We see that chair destroyed in the corner where the door was, but isn't anymore. She starts packing her bags and says, I warned them, though. I always warned them. Oh, well, back to the orphanage to be adopted again, I suppose, because I'm so pretty. Jesus. If I could only get someone to believe me. The end. Um, that one isn't as bad. That one has more of like that sort of horror ending as opposed to um, making it seem like we're going to go somewhere and continue. Uh, but at the same time, this one doesn't have an, you know, the end tag at the bottom of the panel. So it's a little bit less awkward until you turn the page and it's a new story. But um, that one, <clears throat> sorry, that one I actually liked more. Um, it's just very uneven, I guess, as an entire issue. And um, again, the, the art in this entire book, it must have been done by the same person. Like I said, if I can't figure it out by the time I'm done recording, I'll, I'll mention it in another episode, too, and give credit where it's due. Um, but uh, that one wasn't so bad. This one is, this next one is called The Black Stallion. After sneaking away and enjoying an afternoon of totally unsupervised fun, Two tired and slightly worried inmates of a summer camp for boys are now wending their weary way home. So we see two boys running toward a farmhouse. Only one of those sudden summer showers, Pudge. Probably be over in a few minutes. Not lucky for us, that old barn is handy. The boys wait and wait. Gosh, isn't it ever going to stop? Are we going to get to... <clears throat> Sorry. Are we going to get it for staying out after dark? We have a lightning strike. Right in front of them, they see a horse, a big black horse, standing out in the field in the rain in the thunder and lightning, staring right at them. So they call him, hey boy, do you want to get hit by lightning? Come here. And they're like, no. He's, Budge says, no, Greg, don't call him. He's like, I didn't know you were afraid of horses, Budge. He's like, I, I never saw one with red eyes before. He probably has a cold in his head because I guess horses with colds have red eyes. All the more reason why he should come in out of the rain. Come on, boy. He's like, Gre run, Greg. Pudge runs up and climbs up this ladder. He says, boy, are you chicken, Pudge? Watch. I'll have him eaten out of my hand in no time. He says, look out, Greg. He's like, hey, no, boy, down. He's like, stop, stop, stop. He's like, oh, Greg, Greg. He hear this bam, wham, bam. And Pudge is on top of the hayloft, and he says he's kicking the hayloft down. He's like, he wants to get me, too. And he's just, wham, this crap. I mean, this horse is going absolutely nuts. Uh, so Budge is screaming for help. You've got this horse just trying to climb up the wall to get him. And now he's, you know, crashing the walls of the barn down. And he does it. Dazed, but miraculously unhurt, the boy lies under the wreckage of the collapsed barn. Barely permitting himself to breathe, Pudge waits and listens for what seems an eternity. Finally, Pudge starts to inch his way through the darkness. The very thought of accidentally touching the dead body of the murderous horse strikes terror in the boy's heart. But he must go on. Pudge was beginning to despair of ever finding his way out. When he feels rain on his head, Pudge is getting very excited that he made it. He made it without touching him. Still cautious, Pudge slowly pokes his head out and peers carefully in every direction. The coast is clear. Pudge is mourning Greg, realizing that he was the lucky one. Halfway across the open field, a nightmare figure looms up. 
Napa just standing somehow directly in front of this black stallion. Slowly, as though he knows the boy has nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, the demonic horse moves forward. Napa just asking for help for anyone. Please help. Now, as the black stallion lunges forward, uh, lunges toward Pudge, you off panel have a voice say, "Jump aside, boy! Jump aside!" And someone else comes up with a pistol, uh, in a typical farmer dress, and shoots this horse right in the head. Now Pudge is screaming, "Die, you devil! Die! Die!" And then you hear, "No, get away! Stop! Stop!" Then the horse wheels back to Pudge. So I guess it took out this kid. Jesus. Pudge is screaming no, but then the horse crashes down on its back. Pudge is able to run away, screaming for help. Or not screaming, he's kind of whimpering for help. Stumbling blindly along the road, the hysterical boy is picked up by a motorist and taken into town, where he tells his story to the sheriff, a bystander. Same story he told me on the way in, sheriff. Sounds sort of fantastic, doesn't it? Sure does. After he calms down a bit, Mary, call his camp and ask them to send somebody for him. I'm going out to that place now, the boy says. No thanks. I don't think I'll ever feel like eating again. Later, the sheriff comes in to Mary. Greg's body was there, all right, Mary. Killed when the bar was, barn was struck by lightning and fell on him. That's for the record, of course. And the horse? And farm boy, Jim? No horse and no farm boy. Both dead and buried a long, long while ago, Mary. There aren't many left to remember, Jim. Guess I'm not like to forget, though I was only eight at the time. Same age as my pal Woody when I went over there to play with him that rainy day. Saw his pa first, lying near the barn. Wasn't much left to look at after that fiend of a horse got through with him. Then in the field, my friend Woody had put a heavy slug squarely between the, his eyes. The beast... Managed to live long enough to kill him. I, that's it. That's the end of this whole issue. I uh, don't know if I missed a page. I'm like literally looking at the binding to see if there's something missing. Um, except that I guess the sheriff had the same thing happen to him as Pudge. Um, I don't know if they're trying to say, oh, it's, yeah, I don't know what they're trying to say at all. Uh, art is great. But, okay, again, with, you know, these types of stories and saying, like I said, what not to do is, you know, it's not it's not a mystery if, not that they're trying to be mystery stories, they're just supposed to be, oh, it's spooky, but, like, it's like it starts off with the, this ghost story kind of spooky thing about a haunted horse. That's not a terrible premise, uh, but then it kind of ends as if you've been fed these clues all along. And then the sheriff that we're supposed to know is all of a sudden like, yes, I had the same thing happen to me. It's just like, it's very lazy. And like when you hold this against, to me, I guess, you know, everything isn't going to be Tales from the Crypt or Vaults of Horror or, or, you know, Haunt of Fear or Creepy or whatever with like very witty kind of things like that. Everything isn't going to be that way. I get that. But then to have the other side of it with some of this stuff where it's just like literally the exact opposite of that type of writing where it's just like, what I need someone to write a story. It doesn't matter what it is. Just write down something that has to do with something spooky. Let's put it in here. Oh, you don't have an ending? It's fine. We'll just write the end on it and just go. Um, that's what a lot of this feels like. Um, 
And it's kind of like, okay, well, if I wanted to write my own horror comic, now I know what not to do. Um, and I have seen that in multiple places before, but this is to me the most glaring, uh, again, not all of it, but, oh, you know, most of it is the kind of most glaring, like, okay, so avoid these things. And by avoid these things, I mean, make sure you tell a story. Um, so with all of that, it's so funny because it's like, even then, <laughs> this horror comic still has its enjoyable parts. and. The bad stuff is had me laughing about it. Like, really? Just like I ended up giggling about like the things that really don't work or the things that are just like, like I said, just completely left off or unfinished or like thrown at the, thrown in at the end just to end it. Uh, it's so funny how they do that and how they would just had to have it because like, you know, back then you're, you're, at a publisher you're in this room with the drawing shit and like the writers are turning out pages and it's like cartoonists are on the board and they're drawing and they're turning it in and stuff uh it's a different thing now obviously where you're collaborating and you have a little bit more time um it seems like at least with the internet and uh people being in more contact and having more time to develop more intricate stories and stuff like that back then they just had to they just had to print something um, some were better than others, obviously, but we will get back to more ghost stories and we will get back to more Dell, uh, comics. But, uh, this was the first one I came across. Um, and I thought, you know, I'll switch it up and <laughs> give this idea of, uh, you know, ghost stories or what not to do while trying to tell ghost stories. Um, I do love this cover and I understand why they used it in issue one and in issue 21, but uh, it's a fantastic cover, um, and it has your typical kind of the with ghost stories. They have like this sort of silhouetted sort of ghost, I don't know, half transparent, half outlined uh, white figure in a graveyard with a dark mansion in the background, and he's kind of it is kind of this sort of you know your crypt keeper type uh, host. Even though like you know it's not the host in the sense of like you open the book and they tell you something. It's just kind of what's on the cover. Um, but I like it. I actually really love the illustration and the, um, the way it looks and the tone and whatnot. So it's very cool. And I'm, I'm, you know, do want to talk about very soon the next, uh, couple issues that I have of this. I'll break it, break it up obviously as I do. Um, but I hope you can enjoy this for what it is. And, uh, and if you've read this issue or if you have issues of ghost stories that uh, you would like for me to read. I can go find them, and I would love to cover them. Or if you have your own ghost stories, please email me at horrorcomicspodcast at gmail.com or send me a message um, at horrorcomicspod on Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. Um, or just any suggestions whatsoever. Any correspondence is always welcome. Thank you all so much for being here, for listening, and for just taking your time and spending it with me. And until next time, I hope you all keep reading horror comics, finding new horror comics, and as always, please, for the love of God, 